Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Speaker McCarthy caving into the House Freedom Caucus radicals to open an impeachment inquiry against Joe Biden after nine months of fruitless investigation into Biden's son's business dealings. Joining us is Frank Bowman, an emeritus professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law and a former federal and state prosecutor. He has provided testimony to both Houses of Congress on multiple subjects, including the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors during the Clinton impeachment crisis, and his latest book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump, an updated second edition of which will be out next month. Then we'll assess whether Wisconsin Democrats can deal with outrageous gerrymandering in this critical swing state ahead of the 2024 election and speak with Ruth Conniff, the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly served as editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine, where she worked for many years from both Madison and Washington, D.C. She's the author of Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers, and we'll discuss her latest article at the Wisconsin Examiner, Lawless MAGA Republicans Are Trying to Overthrow Democracy. Then finally, we'll look into the Department of Justice's antitrust case against Google, with the government arguing today that Google has illegally protected its monopoly by multi-billion dollar deals with smartphone makers like Apple and Samsung. Joining us is Karina Montoya, a senior reporter with the Center for Journalism and Liberty, a program at the Open Markets Institute in Washington, D.C., With a background in business journalism, she writes primarily about antitrust and media competition issues, as well as digital advertising and data privacy. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Frank Bowman, an emeritus professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law and a former federal and state prosecutor. He has provided testimony to both houses of Congress on multiple subjects, including the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors during the Clinton impeachment crisis. And his latest book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment in the Age of Trump, with a second edition out next month. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frank Bowman. Nice to be with you, as always. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, you're updating your book because (laughs) there have been at least two impeachments against Trump, but now there's going to be an impeachment against Biden based upon, at this point, we don't know. It's an impeachment inquiry that Kevin McCarthy has now directed the House Oversight Committee, chaired by James Comer, who's for the last nine months has been trying to find something on Hunter Biden and, by extension, Joe Biden, and he's going to be coordinating this impeachment inquiry with House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. So 
uh, this looks like a very political move, although a similar move happened uh, with Nancy Pelosi where she went ahead with an inquiry before a full House vote. So what's your impression of of this uh, move today by Speaker McCarthy? Well, I would say to begin with that uh, this is sort of the Mount Everest of political political hypocrisy coming from uh, Kevin McCarthy, who four years ago vigorously protested uh, Nancy Pelosi asking several committees to begin an impeachment inquiry and went beyond that, uh, if memory serves, to actually uh, introduce a resolution of the full House disapproving of uh, Nancy Pelosi um, authorizing or suggesting or encouraging an impeachment inquiry in the absence of a vote by the full house. So um, right right now, McCarthy is doing something that he deplored four years ago as not only being bad form, uh, but but essentially illegitimate. So I mean, that's the first point. Um, and I think we should go on to say that not only did he and the rest of the Republican caucuses in both the House and the Senate essentially deplore uh, Speaker Pelosi's proceeding without a full vote for a while in 2019, when the impeachment against Trump was first, uh, when, when it was actually brought to a vote in the House and later in, in the Senate, uh, one of the principal points on which uh, President Trump and his defenders defended him was the claim that the uh, that he was deprived of appropriate process by the House for precisely that reason. Um, so again, we, we at a minimum we begin with a, a breathtaking act of, of hypocrisy. Uh, now, having said that, um, do I think that uh, one that the House can commence an inquiry through its committee structure of a president with a view to gathering, you know, evidence to impeach him without a full vote of the House? Yes, I think I think they can. I think. Um, there's there's no restriction in the Constitution that prevents them from doing that. That's what I said back in the Trump uh, the, the Trump affair. I think it's I think they can do it. Um, but again, <laughs> this is the Republican Party doing something that they claim the Democrats couldn't do just four years before. But it's pretty clear, isn't it, uh, Frank, that uh, McCarthy doesn't have the votes. He would never get a, a majority vote on this, would he? Because there's a lot of uh, Republicans. Um, particularly in in blue states, particularly in, say, New York, for example, which is why he has a majority. He managed to get a few squeakers across the line in New York. They're not going to go along with it. You know, he needs, what, 200-plus uh, Democrats. Well, I mean, in order for him, there are two, two vote-counting issues here. One of them is the question of whether or not he could get a resolution authorizing an impeachment inquiry through the House at this stage, leaving aside, you know, ultimately impeaching Biden on something later. Um, and the answer almost certainly is no, because if he had those votes, he'd do that instead of doing what he's doing. And in fact, within the last 10 days or so, he said in no uncertain terms that if an impeachment inquiry was going to go forward, it would be uh, through a vote of the full House, which of course now he's not doing. So plainly you're right, he plainly hasn't got the votes. Um, even among Republicans, and of course, no Democrats going to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Of course, the other vote-counting exercise that's at work here is that he is characteristically uh, folding 
in the face of pressure from his extreme right flank, um, who have essentially demanded that he initiate or authorize the initiation of an impeachment inquiry as 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 a condition of their holding off uh, removing him from as, as speaker. Because as you'll recall, in the battle to make him speaker, he consented to a rule change that essentially allowed any member, single member of the House, to uh, to to call for a vote on his his speakership, um, and that means that he can be, in effect, recalled at any moment on the motion of even a single member of the House. And and the radicals are basically saying. Um, we're going to recall you unless you do a whole bunch of things that we want. And one of them is we want a Biden impeachment investigation. But isn't it also clear that this is a precondition that McCarthy has to impeach Biden and Hunter Biden so that the radicals, uh, Freedom Caucus, will not shut down the government and prevent a budget from being passed? I mean, they already had a showdown of the debt limit uh, and putting the full faith and credit of the United States at stake. So this looks even worse. Well, let's let's make a distinction here. The, the Republican radicals don't have that leverage anymore. What they have, however, um, is the ordinary budget process for funding the federal government. And there are budgetary deadlines coming up within the next few weeks um, for you know funding the federal government for the next fiscal year. Um, and what essentially the radicals seem to be saying is, we're not going to vote for funding the federal government, passing the you know the re- regular appropriations bills, unless you you know you exceed our demands. So that wouldn't affect the you know the 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 U.S. debt, but if if they hold to their threats, at least without you know a, a coalition of Democrats and Republicans, you could have a situation where you shut down the federal government. Well, that's the threat, isn't it? And, and the Freedom Caucus have had various press conferences where they've been explicit about it, that they believe that this is their right to shut down the government in order to deal with their spending priorities, which are mostly about cutting almost all of the Democrats' spending priorities. So they've laid down a gauntlet, haven't they? In other words, by exceeding and caving into them to give them the impeachment vote. Is McCarthy buying any grace period or any ability to stave off a shutdown of the government? Well, I certainly can't answer that question. Uh, But I I think we can see that already it seems unlikely on the available evidence that he has any definite commitments on budgetary questions um, in return for his concession on this impeachment investigation, I believe Matt gets the, shall we say, loud member from Florida and member of the Freedom Caucus was on the floor of the House yesterday or today, essentially announcing that, you know, that, that it wasn't good enough, that he was going to have, he, McCarthy, was going to have to to cave on a whole series of priorities of the of the right wing, or they would be calling votes for his head uh, on a, on a daily basis thereafter. So, if there's any kind of agreement between McCarthy and his right flank, um, where you know caving on the impeachment inquiry has gotten him 
any assurances from them, we certainly haven't heard of that. No, in fact, Gates said that, quote, the path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you, McCarthy, into immediate total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. So that's laying down the gauntlet in no uncertain manner. So this is no way to run a railroad. I mean, uh, do you think that the business community, Wall Street, corporate America, the, the normal sort of adults in the room as far as the Republicans go, I mean, they're presumably going to weigh in, aren't they, on McCarthy and just say we don't need any more chaos on Capitol Hill. The Democrats are making the argument that the Republicans, uh, you know, the MAGA Republicans, who now this is Donald Trump's party, they're incapable of, of legislating. In fact, not that they're incapable of legislating, they don't even want to legislate. They just want to fight culture wars and protect Trump. So is there any countervailing pressure on on McCarthy that could force him to be sensible here? Or is his survival more important than the economy of the United States? Well, again, you, you're asking me to psychoanalyze Kevin McCarthy, and, and I would not uh, hazard that task. Another question that you're asking is whether or not um, the you know the business community mm. writ large, um, which has traditionally tended to favor Republicans and therefore has tended to have a fairly large voice in its councils, whether they any longer exert um, sufficient influence to control the machinations of the extreme right wing and I don't know. I'm not a Republican. I'm certainly not a Republican congressman, not privy to their conversations. But certainly from the outside, I think one is disposed to doubt that sort of traditionally Republican interest group any longer exerts, you know, very much influence on the far right wing. So it's all but inevitable then, do you think, Frank, that there won't be a budget? So well, I mean, what, what does it there, what does there, it actually there, mean? And when you you can't pass a budget, does it mean what that when they talk about a government shutdown? I'm not entirely clear about what that means. Well, it means that the funding for the government would not be forthcoming. Now that doesn't mean that absolutely everything the federal government does um, stops, but much of it would. So, for example, um, by pre-existing rules, some members of the, you know, employees of the federal government can be can be deemed um, essential and their functions can be deemed essential and they would continue to work. So for, you know, members of the military, you know, other variety of other people, you know, people in Congress, you know, could be deemed essential and they can continue to work. But not everybody and not every function in the federal government is going to be deemed essential. So for example, uh, so security checks, um, you know, Medicare, uh, Medicaid payments probably would stop because uh, the people who are responsible for, for doing that uh, wouldn't be at work. And in any case, there wouldn't be any money uh, appropriated to, to pay out those expenditures. The national parks would shut. Um, you know, a lot of the ordinary functions of the federal government would simply come to a screeching halt because there would be no money. Either, no money either to make the expenditures 
uh, or to ad administer the ordinary functions of the government. Some pieces of the government would keep limping along, but large chunks of the, of the expansive functions of the federal government would stop until such time as you know, a, a, a budget uh, agreement was reached and the bills were passed through the House and, and on the Senate. You know, in, in I should note, by the way, that, that Republican senators have no use for this nonsense at all. Um, they have signaled very strongly to Mr. McCarthy and, uh, his, and, and Republican members of the House that they have no interest whatsoever in provoking a, a budget crisis and bringing uh, the government to a halt. Indeed, one should note that um, you know the the deal that that McCarthy made with uh, with Biden over uh, the, the the spending limits, uh, the, the debt limit, um, contained some agreements about you know budgetary caps and the like. And essentially, what's happening here is McCarthy made a deal with the with with the administration. He was effectively. Um, these were conditions for resolving the budget, the budget cap uh, crisis. And now the radical section of McCarthy's own party is saying, deal schmeal. Uh, we don't like the deal that you made on behalf of, of us and, and the party and the country. Uh, we're going to now subvert that. So just in closing, then, this looks like it's going to happen, right? Obviously, the Republican Senate, the adults there don't like this idea, and they're trying to tell McCarthy not to do it. But I don't know that McCarthy has any room to maneuver here. And won't it be devastating for the Republicans running in 2024, particularly for the House? I mean, how suicidal are these guys? I mean, you, cut, you stop people's Social Security check. A lot of Republicans are on Social Security. It's absolutely insane. Well, you know, it certainly it would certainly seem to be counterproductive. And one of the things that the sort of what, what you've called the grown-ups in the Republican Party have recognized for a long time is that um, shutdowns of the government, which have been essentially a tool of the Republican right since since Newt Gingrich, have universally proven to be unpopular and have universally uh, uh, proven to have electoral costs for Republicans. But the question of whether or not a a government shutdown is inevitable, it seems to me, is an open one. Um, you know, you, you have big mouths like Gates on the floor of the House saying that, you know, they were, they're going to hold their breaths until their faces turn blue unless, you know, unless McCarthy does absolutely everything they, they want and Marjorie Taylor Greene saying similar kinds of things. I'll believe that when I see it. Um, I, I think it's not at all impossible and maybe not improbable uh, that uh, some sort of budgetary arrangement is going to be worked out uh, in due course. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I mean, the real issue, of course, is whether or not, to me, as you know, someone whose primary interest is impeachment, the question is, will this authorized investigation uh, do anything other than uh, cause a lot of uh, sound and fury and the throwing up of dust. Uh, and there, I think the answer is probably not. Um, the evidence uh, that President Biden has actually done anything wrong, other than perhaps not being the best father in the world and not, um, you know, exerting sufficient control on his rather willful and uh, 
um, greedy son, uh, there's there's zero evidence that President Biden has done anything of a criminal or an impeachable nature as at this point. And that's what distinguishes, I think, what's happening here from any previous event at any time uh, in American history and really relating to any federal official, certainly any impeachment or any any president who has who has faced a serious impeachment effort. And every one of the five uh, prior impeachments or near impeachments, uh, President uh, Andrew Johnson, President Nixon, President, uh, President Clinton, and the two, two Trumps, uh, in each of those cases, before an investigation was convinced in the House by whatever mechanism, a full vote of the House or authorization by the Speaker or what you will, in every one of those cases, there was very substantial available evidence indicating that the president in question had done something that was at least seriously arguable to be impeachable. And there is none, zero, buckus uh, evidence that that's true in this case, a point which, when pressed, uh, Republicans have been pretty much obliged to admit. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, ex extraordinarily dangerous to the country and also uh, a national disgrace. Well, Frank Berman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Frank Berman, who's an emeritus professor of law at the University of Missouri School of Law and a former federal and state prosecutor. He has provided testimony to both houses of Congress on multiple subjects, including the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors during the Clinton impeachment crisis. And his latest book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump now coming out in an updated second edition next month. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether Wisconsin Democrats can deal with outrageous gerrymandering in this critical swing state ahead of the 2024 election. Outside the Pyshian millions Put them into power Expect a little more back for their taxes Like school books, beds in hospitals And peace in our bloody time All they get is old men grinding axes Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ruth Conniff, the Editor-in-Chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who formerly serves as Editor-in-Chief of the Progressive Magazine, where she worked for many years from both Madison and Washington, D.C. She's the author of Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers. And the latest articles at the Wisconsin Examiner are Lawless MAGA Republicans Are Trying to Overthrow Democracy and How Anti-Government Ideologues Targeted Wisconsin's Public Schools. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Conniff. Yeah, glad to be here. So after the Conservatives lost control of the Wisconsin Supreme Court in April's election where Justice Janet Protasiewicz uh, won in a landslide now the Speaker of the House, Robin Vartz, has come up with this outrageous plan to impeach her. So what can the Democrats do? Because the Republicans have a supermajority in, in the legislature, do they not? Yeah, it's a circular uh, it's a circular issue because the reason they want to impeach Justice Janet Protasiewicz is because she has described Wisconsin's voting maps as rigged which is a description that that fits, you know, most 
public opinion. The majority of Wisconsinites know we have the most gerrymandered map in the country. That's why, you know, when Democrats win statewide elections, Republicans are still able to increase their majorities in the state legislature. So, you know, they've drawn the districts in a in a way that favors their domination of the state house here. We have a, a Democratic governor, but we have an overwhelmingly Republican legislature. They're actually a seat short of a supermajority in the assembly, but they do have a supermajority in the Senate, so they could convict. And they have enough people to in the, the assembly, enough Republicans to impeach Protosewitz. And the issue that they're trying to impeach her on, which is criticizing these maps, um, you know, it's sort of ironic because the it was the maps that gave them the majorities to impeach her for criticizing them. There's no there's nothing in the law. There's nothing in the Wisconsin Constitution that says a Supreme Court justice who weighs in on issues during a campaign must recuse herself from cases involving those issues uh, as she, after she becomes a justice. And that's that's what they're trying to say. But even though they're in the wrong and it's very clear they're in the wrong. Uh, when you look at the Constitution, they have the votes to do it if they have the chutzpah to do it. And we'll see, because the Democrats are launching a $4 million ad campaign telling all of their constituents how outrageous it is that in a state that's often decided by slim majorities, the state elections, you know, we're basically a 50-50 state. Protosewitz beat her conservative opponent by 11 points, uh, beat him very early in the night. Wisconsinites have spoken. Overwhelmingly, the, ma the majority voted for her because... Uh, they supported her position, not the Republican position, that they should hang on to power through gerrymandered maps. Uh, she also spoke out against the state's 19th century no exceptions abortion ban, which also could be a case that comes before the Supreme Court. But the Republicans are, you know, they're going to play hardball and try to hang on to power. And they see a, a gerrymandering case, which has already been filed before the Supreme Court, as a real existential threat to their domination of the state. And of course, Wisconsin is a key uh, swing state that helped elect Trump in 2016 and Biden in 2020. And although Biden won the popular vote by about 8 million votes, he barely won in those key swing states, including uh, Wisconsin, by something like 44,000 votes. Yes. So this is why it's significant at a national level, right? Well, not only that, but it's significant because the former conservative majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court very nearly gave Trump his only victory in a state court in challenging the election results. So, you know, the the stakes are very high in Wisconsin. There was a one there was one conservative justice who uh, voted with the liberals and refused to go along with accepting Trump's effort to throw away 200,000 votes only in Democratic precincts in the state. <laughs> it was an outrageous lawsuit, uh, and it never should have gone forward. But all of the conservatives on the court who are there now and who are complaining loudly that the new liberal majority is overstepping by taking power and trying to set rules, which again, is, you know, there's no basis in the law for their complaints, um, all of them wanted to support Trump's challenge to the election in Wisconsin. Wisconsin was also one of the 10 states that had a slate of fake electors. Republican officials, including the former and current uh, chair of the, of the state Republican Party met in secret, cast electoral college, phony electoral college ballots for Trump after it was very clear that Biden had won the state. And our Senator Ron Johnson tried to hand those off to Vice President Mike Pence and was rebuffed. But there's a, you know, there's a, a MAGA Republican effort to overturn democracy uh, that, you know, we're seeing in states around the country and that is focused very hard right here in Wisconsin. So the $4 million ad campaign that the Wisconsin Democratic Party is now engaged in 
how do you name and shame these MAGA Republicans, particularly Robin Voss, who's clearly an ideologue who doesn't care about the law, he just cares about power? Well, it's interesting. Um, Voss has backed off his impeachment threat since that campaign was launched. And there's also a campaign by a group of never Trump Republicans who are pouring money into ads. There's a 30 second spot going up on TV. Uh, That one actually went out ahead of the Democrats uh, campaign, specifically targeting legislators in districts where Protosiewicz won, even though they elected Republican members of the legislature, saying that the Republicans are trying to override the will of the voters. And it's, you know, it's unconstitutional to try to seize power from another branch of government. And, you know, I think there is a little bit of hesitation and concern. Um, they, they claim that they're waiting for more information, they're waiting to see, but they've launched this impeachment threat before Protosiewicz had a chance to weigh in on any case. So, you know, it's, they're not going to get more information than they started with. Um, and I think really what they're doing is testing the waters and and trying to decide what their best path forward is. They insist that she needs to do the right thing and recuse herself from this case because during her campaign, she was very open about the fact that she didn't think that the maps were fair. Um, of course, there's no reason to think that's the right thing because the voters elected her on that campaign promise. And there is no rule that says that she needs to recuse if she makes those kinds of public statements. So. You know, we'll see what happens. The other thing that's happening is there is a newly filed case before the state Supreme Court itself by uh, a lawyer, a progressive lawyer who uh, is representing himself as a protosiewicz voter whose rights are infringed if the legislature forces her to recuse or impeaches her. Um, and that that is another kind of interesting um, tangle because the state Supreme Court itself could weigh in on whether the legislature can force a justice to recuse or impeach her for following state, you have to understand that she's following the recusal rules that are written for the Supreme Court justices by not recusing, they get to decide. Even in cases involving their own donors, they get to decide whether to recuse. So can they allow the legislature to step in and impeach a justice who follows the rules of the court? And that's that's a a constitutional crisis. and so there, so there is a, a possibility that the court itself could decide that that's not right and and stand up, you know, the new liberal majority on the court. There's a possibility that Protosiewicz could quit if impeached and our Democratic governor could appoint a new justice uh, who would rule similarly to how she would rule in the gerrymandering case. Um, you know, there are these different avenues. There's a potential for a federal lawsuit. We'll see what happens. Well, at the federal level, of course, at the Supreme Court level, they're hardly setting an example with Alito refusing to, to recuse himself from a case involving the lawyer arguing to protect billionaires uh, from taxes. It's the same lawyer, of course, who just wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Alito. So the Republicans aren't exactly setting an example in terms of, of consistency and legitimacy vis-a-vis recusal. Right. And I think there's a there's a there is a there's also Supreme US Supreme Court precedent in a Minnesota case in which a justice spoke openly about political opinions, uh, was challenged for it, and the US Supreme Court said that it was a violation of the First Amendment to um, make this justice step down for that. So there is precedent that would support Protosiewicz and and block impeachment in this case. But of course you just don't know what the the Trump appointed justices are going to do. So, but what are the statistics though that prove 
that the, the state has been heavily gerrymandered. And normally it's pretty clear if the Democrats win the popular vote across the state, and well, yet they the, have the fewer House seats and, and fewer seats in the legislature. I mean, that's the case in, in um, Alabama, you know, which the Alabama legislature are even defying the Supreme Court on. I think the best example is in 2018, when Governor Tony Evers, a Democrat, was elected, Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, was reelected to the U.S. Senate. Every single statewide seat, including the lieutenant governor and the secretary of state and the attorney general, everyone was won by Democrats in that year. In the state assembly, out of 99 seats, Democrats were only able to win 36. Wow. So more than half of voters voted for Democrats in, in legislative races, but they were divided up in such a way that the Republicans were able to take two-thirds of that House. So, that, you know, in a, in a year when, when Democrats won statewide in every single race. So that they, clearly it's, it is rigged. You know, this is not a, an outrageous political opinion that Jan- Janet Protosiewicz is, is uh, expressing. That there was a federal judge who basically said the same thing, said Wisconsin has the most politically gerrymandered map in the country. And it's a, you know, a, an explainer story in the AP or the New York Times will always note that we have a heavily gerrymandered map that favors Republicans. So it's not a controversial statement. But it is a threat to Republican power that a liberal majority on the state Supreme Court could revisit those maps before the next census in time for the 2024 election. And that's part of why there's so much urgency here, because there's a short timeline for getting this done. So do you think that the ad campaign, uh, that which would presumably generate public pressure and therefore the public somehow could make these Republicans, who clearly don't seem to care about facts and Fairness, are they going to change their mind? You said that Voss is already seems to be backing down. Yeah, Voss is, you know, he's it's typical of Voss to sort of try to play both sides, to be cautious, to, for example, make statements appealing to election deniers, claiming that there was massive fraud in the election, but then to also not be willing to push forward their agenda. You know, this week, another thing that's happening in our state legislature is that they're getting ready to fire the nonpartisan administrator of elections in Wisconsin on the eve of the next big election here because she's been such a target for election deniers. Although nationally, she's considered one of the best election administrators in the country by her peers. Here in Wisconsin, Republicans have made her a scapegoat. The Republicans themselves appointed her. They confirmed her. But now that she's heading into her second term, they want to make her a sacrificial lamb and potentially throw elections into chaos in Wisconsin. So, you know, there's a lot of politics and appealing to this um, far right base by people like Voss, even though they themselves don't believe that the election was stolen, um, you know, don't believe a lot of the, the other things that they're saying. And whether or not they can be shamed into changing their behavior in part depends on whether they think that they, you know, the state could be ungerrymandered and they could have to to face a broader selection of voters. They wouldn't get to pick their voters and only respond to the most far right voters because the only threat is a threat of a primary challenge from the right. There's no real threat of going up against a Democrat in a head to head general election race. So I think there, what you're seeing, though, is that noticing that Protoseowitz won by 11 points, that Republican-leaning voters voted for her in this last election they had to have, given the results, um, and just how it doesn't really pass the smell test for a lot of people who maybe don't pay a ton of attention to elections, who are reflexively Republican, tend to vote Republican, 
But if they really get these ads in front of their face and they say, do you think the legislature should overturn elections to hold on to power through a rigged map? <laughs> they say, no, it, it really runs afoul of people's basic sense of fairness. So the, the non-politicians who come out and vote, including Republicans, you know, would have to decide that that was not a good idea. And I think there is actually some leverage for that, that there's a basic sense of fairness uh, among Wisconsin voters, including conservatives, uh, that that's really violated by going this far. But Megan Wolf, the uh, election supervisor now that the Republicans voted in and now they want to, or the MAGA people want to vote her out to put in a MAGA person to oversee the 2024 elections. Didn't the Senate um, Elections Committee vote yesterday to confirm her? Yes, and it will go to the floor of the Senate this week, Thursday. No, they didn't vote to confirm her. No, no. Well, there's a complicated. They voted. They voted that they want to move this forward to the full Senate in order to get rid of her. And here's the complication. If you have time, I, I can tell you the the Wisconsin Selections Commission, which was created by Scott Walker. They got rid of the old group of retired judges, the uh, the board that oversaw elections that was very neutral and fair, and they replaced it with a set of six partisan appointees evenly divided between Democratic and Republican appointees. That board, uh, when it was you know asked to vote on whether Megan Wolf should be reappointed, the Democratic appointees refused to weigh in, thus giving the board no majority. The Republicans on the board voted to to have her reappointed in order to send that to our legislature to confirm. And the goal of that was to get rid of her, not to keep her in place. It was to create a confirmation question that would be decided by Republicans in the legislature who wanna get rid of her. The precedent that the elections commissioners who didn't vote at all were relying on is a conservative majority on our state Supreme Court decided that Republicans could keep their appointees in office way past the expiration of their terms and not allow our Democratic Governor Evers to replace them with Democratic appointees as long as there was never a confirmation vote. And so the legislature, the Republican legislature simply refused to hold confirmation hearings on Evers appointees and kept Republicans in positions so that Evers just couldn't get his people in. And so now, ironically, the Democratic members of the Elections Commission are relying on that precedent. And so what the attorney general here says is there is no confirmation question. This hasn't been forwarded to the legislature. And the legislature is just moving forward and pretending that it has been moved to them because they want to get rid of Megan Wolf. It's going to be there's, there will be a lawsuit following the floor vote this week. Well, just in closing, giving us an, an image of kind of authoritarian machinations on the part of Republicans and an appeal to decency on the part of Democrats. Yeah. And that's where we stand, right? Yes, I think that's right. An appeal to decency and just democratic norms, democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I thank you for joining us, Ruth Conniff. Yeah, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Conniff, who's the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner, who has formerly served as the editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine, where she worked for many years from both Madison and Washington, D.C. She's the author of Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers. And her latest article at the Wisconsin Examiner is Lawless MAGA Republicans Are Trying to Overthrow Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the Department of Justice's antitrust case against Google, with the government arguing today that Google has illegally protected its monopoly by multi-billion dollar deals with smartphone makers like Apple and Samsung. Yeah. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Karina Montoya, who is a senior reporter with the Center for Journalism and Liberty, a program at the Open Markets Institute in Washington, D.C. She has a background in business journalism and writes primarily about antitrust and media competition issues, as well as digital advertising and data privacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karina Montoya. Hi, and thank you so much for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us, Karina. And today, the Justice Department antitrust case against Google basically featured uh, lawyers for the Department of Justice arguing that Google illegally protects its internet search monopoly by striking deals uh, with smartphone makers like Apple and Samsung. And apparently they spend, what, Billions a year they pay these smartphone manufacturers? Do you, do you have any specific numbers? Because I heard there were tens of billions in both cases. Yes, that is correct. Um, the Department of Justice is actually estimating that those contracts may range in the value of between $10 billion to $12 billion. Um, they are, there is not really a a public disclosure of the of the contracts. Um, it's, it's basically sort of a trade uh, secret or uh, it's basically protected um, by non-disclosure agreements. So right now we have estimates. Um, but yes, that is correct. So what do they get in return for spending billions to the smartphone manufacturers like Apple and Samsung? What do they get in return, Google? Mm-hmm. So what they get in return is something that in, in antitrust lingo, if, if you want to call it that way, is, call, is called uh, foreclosing competition. It, it basically restricts the ability of uh, the counterparties, in this case, Apple or other Android phone manufacturers, to um, strike uh, similar deals or similar or just open a, a different process to get a search engine to be the default search engine in those devices that they manufacture. So it's basically a way of securing um, a traffic and securing uh, popularity and, and in a way also to, to prompt or to lead consumer choice to always stick in um, with one specific uh, search engine provider. So the, the case is built around um, the fact that defaults matter and th- if those contracts wouldn't have existed or if they wouldn't have been designed in a way that they prevented other competitors to also um, be default uh, search engines or at least to let the consumer choose um, more transparently, what is the search engine that they would have preferred to to choose or use? Then Google wouldn't have the power that it has amassed um, in the past 15 years in the search engine and also um, search advertising market. 
Well, of course, Google has become a verb. So they dominate the the market, not just uh, economically, but psychologically too, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And and it's it's I think the result of not only the business practices that they have carried out in the search engine market, um, but also other practices that I think are necessarily a matter of discussion in this specific lawsuit. Like, for example, um, sort of the surveillance machine um, that uh, they have built on the different um, products that they that they um, commercialize. Um, so it's, it started with the search engine, right, and expanded to Gmail, expanded to YouTube. Um, and now we have phones. If anyone is an Android phone user, actually, when you um, buy an Android phone, um, there is like a little widget um, that allows you to search for basically any information you want on the open web, and it always defaults to um, Google. So basically all of these different agreements, in a way, also dictated the design of um, the software in itself, right? in a way that it wouldn't allow other um, search engines to also be the providers of that same service. So there was, uh, the last time there was an antitrust uh, suit against a big tech monopoly was in the late 1990s against Microsoft. And the Justice Department sued Microsoft for illegally crushing competition by bundling its Internet Explorer browser with its Windows software. And this trial went on until 2001, and it was settled. But an appeals court reversed the breakup order, and then essentially Microsoft has gone from strength to strength. And now, of course, is the largest investor in ChatGPT, uh, the AI platform. So this case seems to be very similar in in the way that the Justice Department has brought the suit almost based upon their original filing against Microsoft. But do you expect a different outcome here, that if Microsoft essentially got away with it, will Google get away with it? I think that remains to be seen, but you are absolutely right in the sense that this is a a case that is similar to Microsoft in the sense that we are assessing practices that effectively foreclose competitors. It practices that basically helped a company maintain um, a dominance in a market. Um, But I think that there are a few things that we should consider that make a difference um, between that case and this one. And it's basically a matter of context. We've come a long way to, um, or or in general, we've we've come a long way in, in, in the history of how we treat and we view these platforms. Um, and that is mainly due because of their uh, ubiquity, like you're saying. Um, they're just so prevalent in all of the aspects of our lives that one starts wondering, one starts wondering um, how is it that we've come to to this position in the first place, right? And so I would just mention that right now there is um, a lot of movement going on in other regions such as Europe, where we already have a Digital Markets Act that um, lists a series of business practices that are allowed or that are acceptable within digital markets such as search. 
uh, online search digital advertising and in the Digital Markets Act, there is already a provision where European users of any type of phone should be able to be prompted um, or notified in a visible way, prominent way, about the different choices that they have um, to select a search um, a search engine or even you know a search browser. Um, so I think that creates a difference in, in terms of like how we view and how we understand the possibilities of um, creating more um, healthy competition in digital markets, right? And second, we also have now a new administration. And this administration has made it very clear that they are going after um, creating transformational a structural change in the markets and in the way that businesses conceive what it means to compete um, and also in the specific tools that they can use to compete and, and, and actually create a market that favors consumers' choice instead of pushing that choice to consumers. So back in uh, 2000, the federal judge overseeing the Microsoft antitrust case, he ordered that Microsoft be broken up into two companies, one producing operating systems and the other uh, producing software. But as I mentioned, in an appeals court reversed the breakup order and it never happened. So what kind of order if is this judge likely to come up with if indeed uh, this is a similar case against Google? Can Google be broken up or, or what would the components be needed to be broken up in order to make it more competitive so that other companies can get their browsers into smartphones? Mm-hmm. I, think the, I think the specific formula of what Google could look like in, in a potential order of divestiture, um, it, it can be, I, I guess it can be formulated in, in different ways. But I would just say that specifically for this case, the um, um, the remedies will be discussed in a separate proceeding. So I think at this point it's too early to say specifically how um, um, the DOJ would um, request or petition the judge to consider an order for divestitures. But I think we will have to consider all the areas within the corporation where the different product segments where they operate generate conflicts of interests in a way that it benefits them in detriment to either consumers or their own clients. And I think we can see that more clearly, or hopefully we will see that more clearly in an upcoming case that should be scheduled for trial uh, the first half of next year, which is um, U.S. versus Google digital advertising. Um, so in general, Google operates and, well, it operates in many different markets. Um, but the the way in which it uses personal data and the way it, it uses different its access to insights from other uh, clients or other businesses that do business with it, um, anything or any business practice that basically um, leverages insights or a um, a domain uh, that they have of a certain market to fortify another market where they operate, that is where we would like to see 
a breakup. So if we have Google, um, for example, uh, offering search, uh, I'm sorry, offering advertising placements for publishers, it shouldn't be also um, acting as an intermediator or a middleman of those adverti uh, advertisements, just to put an example, right? In this specific case, um, my guess would be that we wouldn't want to see Google operating in a search engine market, also dictating the terms uh, to phone manufacturers um, of how that search, uh, that, that position in search should be maintained, right? So if they're going to also produce or manufacture Android, um, maybe a possibility will be that they won't and they would only be in um, the search engine market and not also in um, the phone software um, market. So I think that remains to be seen, but we should pay attention to where are those conflicts of interest being created that help Google maintain its monopoly power in different sectors. Yeah, but is there anything that can be done for competitors to be able to pay billions? I mean, obviously, Google can afford billions to give to Apple mm -hmm. and to Samsung, but other companies can't. So there's a, that, there's an unfair advantage there, isn't there? Yes, correct. And the lawsuit or the remedies that, um, at least in the original complaint, were listed is, is not is not really only um, breaking up certain parts of the business. It's also about whether the agreements can be actually um, written in the way that they've been written so far. Because if these agreements are found um, illegal in the sense that their exclusionary characteristics um, indeed foreclose uh, competition, then Google, one of the remedies will be for Google to stop celebrating these contracts in the way it's been doing it, and, and that would completely change the mechanics of the market. Well, back in uh, 2019, a company was founded called Neva. It was founded by a former Google advertising head who didn't like what Google's product had become because it's been dominated by advertising. And he started a subscription-based business model. And it basically uh, <laughs> went out of business. He had a better product, but he didn't have the, the clout. And he was also using um, AI. So... If you follow the case of Neva, it doesn't look very promising for any competitors and particularly startups. You're correct, and and I'm glad that you mentioned Neva because it is possibly the best example of the pernicious effects that that Google's dominance has over the entirety of this specific market, which is search. There have been attempts to create a different business model where data privacy is at the center of the product um, because, believe it or not, there are many consumers out there that actually do appreciate and value data privacy and not being surveilled by the different products that they use, um, or at least they would like to know exactly how that works and be able to opt out. Um, 
And something that I believe I read um, in how uh, Neva had to go out of business and actually redirect its investments into a different sector, which is now generative AI applications or large language models, um, is precisely because they just can break into this barrier that Google has created with um, the different phone manufacturers and mobile devices, laptop manufacturers in general. Um, how do you market a product with, first of all, you know, the budget that you have and face of Google? It is very well known um, across the board in, in the VC world, in the, the venture capital world, um, that companies that want to challenge big tech corporations do not get funding because of it. And right. that is a big problem. Well, Karina, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Karina Montoya, who is a senior reporter with the Center for Journalism and Liberty, a program at the Open Markets Institute in Washington, D.C., with a background in business journalism, she writes primarily about antitrust and media competition issues, as well as digital advertising and data privacy. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.